If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is the fantastic Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Welcome back, Lucy. It's good to see you. Good to be with you guys. Also returning to the roundup is politicology fan favorite Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. On this week's roundup, President Biden's video call with Vladimir Putin and the Russian presence on the Ukrainian border, the next Trump coup that's already underway, the challenges of vaccine mandates, and finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about David Perdue's announcement that he's running for governor of Georgia. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's dig in. On Tuesday, President Joe Biden had a high-stakes video call with the Russian leader Vladimir Putin as Russia builds its military presence on the Ukrainian border. The two spoke for over two hours on issues including Ukraine, ransomware, and, quote, joint work on regional issues such as Iran, according to the White House. Later on Tuesday, Biden briefed allies, including French President Emmanuel Macron, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and German Chancellor Angela Merkel on the Putin call. In a statement, the White House said the allies underscored their support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, as well as the need for Russia to reduce tensions and engage in diplomacy, end quote. And a day after he met with Putin, Biden said, quote, the idea that the United States is going to unilaterally use force to confront Russia invading Ukraine is not in the cards right now, end quote. 
And he added that U.S. involvement in Ukraine will depend on what other NATO countries are doing. That's according to Jennifer Epstein reporting for Bloomberg. <sighs> Molly, can you uh, help us get a, a lay of the land here uh, and what's going on at the Russian-Ukrainian border? Yeah, well, I think I think there's a lot of different things going on. I think uh, for me, the top takeaway from the interactions the last few weeks, uh, sort of starting with a meeting of of Secretary of State and Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, leading up to this call and now the call and all the aftermath of the call, is that um, I think Putin is really happy with who he's talking to across the table right now. And this shit that the Russians get away with, where they use hard power to force diplomatic and other concessions, continues to work because we all deny that that's what's happening. And this team is the same team that was awful at Russia under Obama, and they apparently decided to learn nothing from any of that experience um, and have brought all of that back in the worst possible way for Ukraine, first and foremost, um, but probably for the rest of us uh, further down the list. And it's really great that they're going to sit around with Germany and France and talk about the future of NATO with Russia. But uh, the people who should be doing that are the frontline states who are fighting this fight every day, who apparently are not being listened to right now. So I think there's a lot going on that's really problematic um, and indicative of a lack of a learning curve with how we as a nation deal with Russia. And I know that's all very blunt and not very sugar-coated in niceties, but um, it's really hard for me to call it any other way than that. So after the call, Jake Sullivan told reporters that Biden told Putin that the things we did not do in 2014, we are prepared to do now. And right now, it looks like new sanctions on Russia are still on the table, uh, new sanctions on members of Putin's inner circle and on Russian energy producers, even a quote-unquote nuclear option of disconnecting Russia from the SWIFT international payment system used by banks around the world. Uh, senior State Department official Victoria Newland said on Tuesday that the U.S. expectation is that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will be suspended if Russia moves on Ukraine. How does the situation look different now than it did in 2014? And does the U.S. have any more leverage uh, and and or are we willing, willing to use it more than in 2014? Or is this just a lot of uh, you know hot air? There's one thing that should be on the table that was not then and still is not, apparently, according to everything they've pre-projected into the world before we even begin negotiations, as if no one has ever taken a basic negotiations course, let alone read the Negotiating with the Soviets books, um, is that we're not going to do more for Ukraine. And yes, they'll go on and on with their long list of like, oh, we've done all this military support for Ukraine. And that's totally true. But this idea that they're going into negotiations saying, no, we're not going to show up and defend Ukraine if the Russians invade. Like, no, we're probably not going to give them serious plus ups on armaments or other things if the Russians invade is the thing that we're getting wrong about this over and over again. That is what the Russians care about. They care that They've been fighting Ukrainians in a war for almost eight years and, and not one. And the Ukrainians are a very effective force, have honed themselves against the Russians, have massive reserves trained and a massive land army trained in combat against the Russians. Um, and we're not taking that seriously enough in terms of what is actually happening on the ground and what this means for the Ukrainians and for the Russians both. Instead, it's this like, oh, well, you know, it's like the basic formula is, you know, if 
the part that we're getting sort of right is if you do X, in this case, X being invade Ukraine, then Y, here's a list of consequences, right? The Ys. But we're still doing this. And if you don't do X, then Z, like incentivizing the not doing of the thing, right? And it's like, that's why the Russians do it in the first place, because they want the incentives for, for averting the crisis they've created. And every time we do this shit, where we come in there like, oh, thank you so much for not invading Ukraine, which you shouldn't have been invading in the first place. We're, we're reinforcing why they will do it again. You know, the, it was the same cycle in April this year when there was a massive buildup on the Ukrainian border when, like, essentially we gave them concessions to, to not do something. And now we're just doing it again. And this idea that the announcements coming out of this are NATO's going to negotiate on the future of NATO with Russia. What the crap i mean what are you talking about like why is that even on the list of things that needs to happen and um i just i don't see a lot of positives coming out of the interactions that i've seen and i know i'll get a lot of criticism for that and everybody who wants to say that like president biden is so much better than president trump and blah 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 okay fine whatever but we're not we're not getting we the united states of america are not getting this problem with russia right Okay, so I want to. I have one more question for you, and then, and then, Lucy, I'd love to hear how you how you connect these dots. But what I want to know from you, Molly, and really for our listeners, is why should they care? Why should Americans care about what's going on in Ukraine when we have so many problems here? I think you've seen a lot, especially if you're on Twitter, uh, on the left and the right this past week. on the, the far right example is, of course, Tucker Carlson overtly saying, who the fuck cares about Ukraine anyway? And openly saying it's all NATO's fault and Putin's got a point and like whatever the hell is happening at Fox News now. But that was the, you know, actual Chirons running on Fox News was just like overt Russian propaganda. And on the, the left side this week, you've seen a lot of, well, maybe the Russians have a point, you know, back to this made up narrative of how it's NATO's fault for advancing toward Russian borders and Russian sensitivities and blah, 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 blah. Like there's a lot of this stuff happening. Like, why do we care about Ukraine anyway? And the answer is we should care about Ukraine because they've been fighting a war at the border of Europe to secure European security and our allies for seven years and not losing and have paid that cost themselves with very little help from the West And if we don't think that's important, and if we don't understand where that fits in the pattern of the things that we are doing against an extremely aggressive adversary, that being Russia, then I don't know what we're even doing here. Lucy? Yeah, I mean, the way that I think about this is (laughs) what kind of calculation Joe Biden and the Biden administration and Democrats are making as we hurl ourselves into 2022. And, you know, really the sense that the timing of this could not come at a worse time because we are just getting distance from the Afghanistan extraction, right? And and that has been a thing that has maybe been a little bit stickier um, and stuck to them more, both stickier and sticking than they might've hoped for. And so Biden is really committed to showing that he is the administration for the first administration in decades who is not getting us into new wars, right? I mean, even the Clinton era, for those who were paying attention and remember, we were thinking about engagements like uh, the the ongoing fighting in places like Kosovo, right? You know, it's, it's not even just the Middle East. And so I think that one of the things that the Biden administration is really trying to communicate when they say things like, 
troops are not on the table. There are going to be severe consequences, but these are going to be economic consequences. Is that what they're trying to message is we are not going to get into another protracted battle. But the problem, and I think Molly's alluding to this with kind of what is functionally appeasement, is that at some point when the rubber hits the road, if all of these things happen and nothing is done and Russia is sort of like, yeah, your this or that consequence bounces off of me. And Russia, of course, can also make the U.S. feel some pain, right? And Russia's allies can make the U.S. and Western allies feel some pain. Then you're in a position where you have to start sending troops. And then you're sending troops quite late. And by some estimation, there are already over 150,000 Russian troops stationed along the border of Ukraine with, with you know, almost 100,000 ready to go as early as January. And, and so I think this is very bad timing for the Biden administration politically going into midterms because they've just gotten out of Afghanistan and don't want to then be the administration that has gotten us into another engagement anew. But it's it's a it's a challenging it's a challenging um, set of set of uh, set of facts that that will be interesting to see how they how they navigate them. And if I could just add to what Lucy just said, all of which is exactly right. Um, uh, I think one we haven't really reflected enough on the role that Russia played in how and why we left Afghanistan the way that we did, mm. um, and the the years of preparatory work they did to create the situation in which things are now wholly owned by the Taliban. And I think that um, it's something we should look at because two is that, yes, right now we're focused on this very narrow stretch of border in Ukraine and what Russia is doing. But that means that, again, we're not talking about Belarus. We're not talking about what's happening further north uh, near the Baltics. Uh, We're not talking about the Arctic. We're not talking about what Russia is doing with China. We're not talking about Russia and Africa. And this extreme lack of a global strategy and vision to deal with these two adversaries, Russia and China, will kill us if we do not pay attention to it in a more strategic and sort of wholly informed way, instead of batting down or trying to bat down one crisis at a time. Because then we just, you know, we're we're sort of focused on the one thing, and then we discover there's like the knife stabbing you in the back from the other side. Um, We don't, approach this in the same way as the Russians and the Chinese. And we really need to fix our mindset on how we are looking at this. Can you just give our listeners a brief peek into what you mean by Russia vis-a-vis Afghanistan? Are you basically saying that our withdrawal from Afghanistan was a win for Russia? Absolutely. I mean, for for years, uh, Russia uh, had supported the Taliban, whether the, the actual physical bounties story is true or not, right? Like, uh, the intelligence still being sort of mixed, it doesn't matter. The Russians supplied arms, money, financing, uh, and intelligence, most importantly, targeting intelligence about our guys and where our guys were to the Taliban. In all of the years where they were fighting our guys more directly uh, and targeting special forces, in particular uh, special operations forces, um, who were partnering with Afghan forces to create more pain, right? To create the situation of, we just need to get out, no more, whatever. And that's not to say the Taliban wouldn't have been doing Taliban things anyway, but they were greatly in, um, you know, they were greatly uh, enhanced in their capabilities by partnering with the Russians. They also have aid from other places, of course, Pakistan, et cetera. Um, But this, this Russian piece was very specifically about engineering U.S. humiliation and retreat from Afghanistan as part of their global messaging. 
Um, that's not to say we were going to win Afghanistan if the Russians weren't involved, right? But like these these added aspects of what they were doing, um, we just have not talked about the fact that there was an extensive Russian presence and influence on what was happening in those end stages. Um, and I think it's really interesting that this has not really been talked about very much. I think what I'm what I what I'd like our listeners to take away from this segment, uh, if you agree with this, is that we should be thinking about Ukraine. If nothing else, we should be thinking about the conflict uh, at the border of Ukraine as problematic in and of itself for the people of Ukraine, but also emblematic of the broader fight between free people and autocrats around the globe. And that struggle is, I think, uh, a perfect segue to our next segment. Yeah. And I mean, but look, like right now, as we're recording this uh, and when this will be airing, you know, uh, there's the the White House's big democracy summit thing happening. And what is the message we just sent? Yes, democracy is good. All democracies in the world should be, you know, powwowing together and trying to enhance our presence, right? Oh, but if the fight comes, good luck, yeah. you're on your own. Right. You can't have those be the same week's message. And I think that this, like, what what Americans really need to fully embrace and evaluate in our history is we are strongest at home when we are strong in the world, because when you are promoting democracy at home and abroad, um, we believe more in the stuff that we're doing. And this idea that we can withdraw into ourselves and focus on clean water and fixing our own shit. And there's plenty of shit. Like we need to fix a lot of things. Um, and that, and that the world will just pause and give us a break while we do it, and that won't have any consequences on us, is wrong. And we need to be out there fighting these fights everywhere, because nobody else is going to do it. Nobody. Okay, speaking of this fight, we're going to spend some time here. Um, earlier this week, The Atlantic published a marvelous piece online by Barton Gelman titled, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. And Gelman writes, if the plot succeeds, the ballots cast by American voters will not decide the presidency in 2024. Thousands of votes will be thrown away or millions to produce the required effect. The winner will be declared the loser. The loser will be certified president-elect. Gelman's argument is the same one we've been making for months here that the new laws in Republican-controlled state legislative houses give the legislature the power to throw out votes and decide which slate of electors the state will have to vote in the Electoral College. And this piece touches on a lot about the motivation behind the rioters on January 6th and how that day is being interpreted by its apologists. It's well worth the read. Uh, They also have an audio version if you want to listen to it. We'll link to it in the show notes today. I I really encourage you to to absorb this piece. But the driving point is that after the election, Trump needed 38 electors to reverse Biden's victory outright, or 37 to force a tie and throw the contest to the House of Representatives. All of the other flailing, the press conference at the landscaping company, the failed court cases— was all in service to that goal. Uh, His team sought to get the 38 votes from the 79 votes among Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Ultimately, they were unsuccessful, as we know, but the Trump team tried to persuade and intimidate state officials by rejecting election results from counties that voted for Biden. And we saw this play out in Detroit. Or when he asked Brad Raffensperger to find nearly 12,000 votes to overturn the Biden win in Georgia. 
And this would have given the legislatures a credible excuse to meddle and throw out the election results and appoint their own electors. That is really the nightmare scenario. And once upon a time, we were talking about it as as something that simply could not happen. And Gelman makes it really clear in this piece that that is precisely the plot that is underway right now. That is the meddling in the machinery that's uh, that's being carried out. And I want to dive into this problem that state legislatures might just throw out votes they don't agree with. But first, uh, before we before we get into the weeds, what did you both make of the piece? What jumped out at you? Um, there's there's one thing with, which I'll mention in a little bit that stood out to me. But Lucy, why don't you go first? Sure. I mean, this is totally a must read and agree. Everyone should put this on their list for this weekend. One of the things that really stuck out to me and actually let me back up just a tiny bit by saying, I spend a lot of time as a former Republican, former conservative political operative, person who's worked in states, has lobbied all over the country in state legislatures. I'm very focused on grassroots activation. I am constantly trying to solve the problem of, what is, why is this happening, right? Is it economic insecurity? Is it regulation? You know, is it, what, what is it? Because if we could find some kernel, if this is the thing motivating these people that seemed rational and would be something that we wanted to come to the table on, right? Like um, tax code, however you feel about how much the wealthy pay or don't pay or however you feel about business licensing. Those are issues that anyone can come to the table on. And it's really disheartening that the thing that I come back to over and over again is just so insurmountable and feels insurmountable in so many ways, which is just white supremacy, white nationalism, the rise of white nationalism. And this piece really, really drives that home. And you have had conversations on politicology with with Tom Nichols, who has rejected the idea that, oh, this is just economic insecurity and it's elites who uh, are, are asleep at the wheel on how these regular Americans feel. In this article, they talk about how some researchers decided they would try to isolate who the January 6th insurrectionists were. And this, to me, is what stood out the most. And it was not at all what you might think, or well, actually, the, your listeners, politicology listeners are sophisticated, so they maybe are anticipating the punchline, <laughs> but they, it was not education level. It was not level of wealth. The only thing that was meaningful, there was only one meaningful correlation about who these, these insurrectionists were. They were more likely to come from a county where the white share of the population in that county was in decline. And there's an amazing stat, which was that for every one point drop in a county's percentage of non-Hispanic whites between 2015 and 2019, the likelihood of an insurrectionist hailing from that county, I'm just quoting from the article at this point, increased by 25%. And that is just, that's the punchline. The punchline is white grievance. (laughs) And so to me, that is one of the, you can, you can kind of play with the stat like, well, those are the people who were arrested. So maybe they're a different population. But some people, that includes people who were arrested for trespassing. It doesn't mean that these were all violent people. But to me, that nugget really, really stands out. That's exactly the thing that stood out to me. I would just, my jaw dropped. Uh, I was I was texting with Mike Madrid about it this morning, actually. Um, Molly, what stood out the most to you? You know, there was a lot. There was a lot. And I thought this was a really interesting piece. Um, In many respects, it was kind of 
uh, a nice companion to the Atlantic piece by Anne Applebaum that I think we all talked about the last we time we were on this thing together. Yeah. Um, because it's the same, the message is the same, which is, you know, the, the reward structure for the creeps amongst other creeps is greater than, than what's on the other side. Right. And this idea that, uh, non-crazy leaders just aren't disruptive enough right now, uh, in their thinking to be up to the task of taking on these kooks. And, um, I think that sort of resonates through the piece in really interesting ways that are backed by all of this data. Um, I think there was a lot of things in the piece that I think stood out for me at the, at one point there were these sort of great, you know, when he was talking to some of the the specific guys that he was uh, interviewing for the piece, you know, this guy he described as fluent and revisionist narratives spread by fabulists and trolls on social media, which is pretty much like the quote of the last five years, right? Like this is everything. It's the revisionist narratives spread by trolls on social media and, um, and how effective they are at, uh, at sort of inflaming these identity crises in many places in the world. And it's not just the United States. And I don't think enough Americans understand that. And I think that's a piece, uh, uh, or that's sort of an idea that comes through in this piece, especially when he's talking about um, this Milosevic uh, analogy and how similar in many ways Trump is to um, sort of building the structures of hate and replacement mentality that led to bloodshed and violence and war. Um, and total destruction in the former Yugoslavia. Um, and you'll hear others talk about Trump comparing him to, you know, Franco and Mussolini. And Americans are just like, eh, you know, we're not, we're not like that. And it's in fact very true that the same sentiments and the same structures, the same uh, sort of mechanisms for how these things are being built uh, have a lot of historical example. And Trump doesn't know those. He doesn't know history. He has no idea who Milosevic is. Or, or if he knows, he thinks he's a great guy, you know. But I think what's so interesting to all of us has always been how instinctual he is at just knowing how to do this stuff without understanding. And behind him, there are guys like Bannon who know the history, uh, who are building these structures globally to sort of um, try to uh, very specifically inflame these things. And I think this thing about white nationalism, white supremacy, however you want to describe it now, I think what's so interesting is, is how purposefully it has been built over the past three decades by media and narrative structures on the right wing of America that will take no accountability for this and will not say that they have done it. Um, but you hear it in the voices in this piece, right? This guy who will go through and talk about Every career he, every career potential he think he lost because women are now allowed to work or minorities are now allowed to have jobs. But this idea that like average white guys can't find work because all these other crazy people like women are allowed to work and what a crime that is, you know. But it's just so interesting that the structure of of how people discuss this stuff has been built by right wing media in America. First, in a not meant to be leading toward political violence way, and now very intentionally uh, in a political violence rhetoric. Um, but that, I think, the way in which this is very carefully documented in that piece really resonated with me um, because it, it sounds so much like these examples of countries that have just gone completely down the toilet. Um, and I really don't think most Americans understand how very close we are to sustained, persistent, widespread nationwide political violence and what that means and what it looks like. 
we have had, as we know, and we've talked about, I've, I mean, I've been saying this for since, since, you know, even pre 2020, uh, pre 2020 election that like we've had political violence in this country. Um, we've had many incidents of it. Charlottesville was one example. Um, and that it has only gotten more organized, more coordinated, uh, and January 6th, everyone looked at it at the time as like the culmination of that trend. But you read this piece and it becomes very clear that it was just practice, um, that it was a warm up round. Uh, I think there's a line along the lines of, uh, you know, a plot unpunished is practice for the next. And that's precisely what we're looking at. It doesn't take, it doesn't take uh, that much effort to just zoom out a little bit and look at this trend and where it's headed to understand that we're on the brink of something extremely dangerous. Um, and we've had a lot of really, really great voices on this show look at this problem from different disciplines and different angles. And I hope that by now, you know, I don't think, I don't think politicology listeners need any convincing that this is, that this is a major crisis that the, you know, that the red light on the control panel is flashing. I think they know that, but, but the reason we're talking about it today and that I wanted to include it and spend some time with it is because it's not getting enough attention in in our mainstream media. It's just not uh, given given the existential threat that this poses. Uh, I don't understand. I mean, I, I, I think we could come up with some reasons, but I, but I think it's extremely negligent that most of journalism is not focusing on this in a big big way. Um, one of the points that Galman makes, uh, Lucy, feel free to chime in, by the way, before we move on to another point, you're nodding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're using the wrong terms and we're using euphemism. So we should stop saying Trumpism. We should stop saying that. We should start saying proto-fascism or fascism, right? Or authoritarianism. We should eradicate terms like the alt-right. It's the mainstream, right? Right. Yeah. We're still using all these terms that are kind of from a different time or as though it's this kind of fringe thing or this more particular thing as opposed to a pervasive thing. And the media is doing a disservice by not engaging this in a more full frontal way. But I I think a lot of it is that it it doesn't even lend itself well to punditry, right? I mean, if the conclusion is, yeah, it's like an insane amount of white grievance and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's this really, really ugly thing that doesn't really lend itself that well for a back and forth about the tax code, right? And so we continue to use the wrong lenses, I think, and we're using the wrong terms. We are. Um, you know, so I, I mentioned this in the setup, but I just wanted this to be really clear. The path to this getting extremely ugly is, to me, the one where state legislatures end up choose state legislatures in key states which are controlled by republicans and that's not changing anytime soon are they choose the electors which is their right to do overriding the state popular vote uh, and then congress which by 2024 could very likely be fully in republican control certifies the loser as president that's 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 the legal path that this would take. One of the points that Gelman makes is that this crisis is happening, and that Democrats, big big D and small D, aren't behaving as if they believe that the threat is real. So, and I've mentioned this on the show before that we make a lot of noise about voting rights, and I'm going to catch some heat for this, but we need to stop focusing on 
the uh, the the access to the ballot as much uh, and start focusing a whole lot more on what happens after those votes are cast. Because the reality is that uh, that changes in voting laws would account for infinitesimal changes in the actual vote. And what we're talking about is overriding that vote after those votes have been cast. That's where our attention really needs to be. So I wonder how you think elected officials should be messaging about these new election subversion laws. Yeah, well, I think that we are, I think Democrats in general are operating on a timeline that doesn't make sense. Um, And they are not, I mean, we've already talked a lot on politicology about the way that Democrats miss the vote on redistricting on a whole number of things, but they're really focusing on the wrong things. I mean, another, another piece of news this week was that, uh, was that uh, uh, Hogan Gidley, the former Trump, well, current Trump sycophant, former Trump administration official has now, is now spending his time briefing state legislators at the ALEC meeting, that's the American Legislative Exchange Council, as recently as last week, on ways to basically decertify elections, take away power from local election officials. And so meanwhile, Democrats are really focused on, we need to expand early voting and we need to guarantee the, the you know, that you can, all this stuff, we need to make sure there's more mail-in voting. We need to have more drop boxes. We need to make it more easy to, we should make everyone automatically registered. Those are all great ideas, so fine. Love it, great, but they are fine. totally not relevant to what is going to happen uh, <laughs> 11 yeah. months from now, right? And, and, and also, I think a lot of Democrats are treating 2020 like a wash, like, oh, that's like historic precedent because what happens in 2022? You know, we always lose in midterms yeah. when we're in power. But 2022, like, we'll just onward to 2024, just hold the ground. Well, the hell with that, because the people who are elected in 2022 are going to be the people overseeing the election in 2024. And so all of this stuff, it's, and you've identified this well before, Ron, but there's a lot of kind of conceptual, like, let's imagine the world in which we want to live in. And that's all fine. And there's a time and a place for that, but there is not a lot of bare knuckled meeting Republicans where they are in the the strategy. And we have talked about this before, but I'll mention it again, because it's very relevant. The precinct strategy, that is what it's called, and this is out in the open, that was originally originated by this Tea Party activist in Arizona, but is now kind of attributed to Steve Bannon, that the messaging around precinct strategy, and you can literally go to their website and see this, and don't mistake the low tech of their website for thinking that they don't know what they're doing or that they're not serious because they are deadly serious. They are pushing the message, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is almost word for word, that essentially to be a Republican, if if you're a Republican who is a, you know, devoted Republican, then you need to be a precinct committeeman or a delegate. And you can go look at their message boards and they are talking about, I mean, it's thousands of people every day. Go find one of these message boards. It's like hundreds of posts a day. You can watch them come in. Like I'm in such and such county in Pennsylvania and I'm going to become a precinct committeeman. I'm going to become an election watcher. I'm in it, you know, school boards. The plan is to get MAGA loving, proto-fascist, patriots. sort of believing <laughs> patriots to infiltrate every level of the Republican party and by extension, our government. And Democrats are just talking about how but like, you know, we should not call it ballot harvesting, you know, all things that are true, all things <laughs> but are they true. are completely not meeting the moment. 
they're they're not meeting the moment. And really, you know, if I was uh, if I was strategizing for Republicans, right, I would be perfectly happy to let Democrats think that ballot boxes and early voting are where the fight is happening. Yeah. Yes. Good, good point. Great. Good point. Go fight over there. Go fight for how many ballot boxes and what the deadline should be for early voting. Good. Like have at it because behind the curtain over here, while you're not watching, we're doing something that's like far more sinister. And will have a much bigger impact on, on or outcomes. Not even, not even so much behind the curtain. That's what's not like behind, you're so right. not pull the your hair out about this. It's yeah. actually in the open, right? They're actually now, they're not even being secretive about it. They're not, this isn't like a secret telegraph. It's a megaphone. They are all out there. They're at, you know, meetings that are covered by press like Alec. They are, you know, broadcasting this on Steve Bannon's platforms. They're talking about encouraging people to go get involved on Fox News. There is no secret effort underway here. It's all in the open. And it's like, it's like you could bang your head against a wall with, and, and Democrats would be like, well, we're over here doing this other thing. It is, it is very frustrating, <laughs> frustrating to watch. <laughs> okay. So the Justice Department, by the way, has filed suit to overturn some of the provisions of the new Georgia law, uh, but not to challenge the takeover of election authorities. This is one example, right? And the suit focuses on the traditional voter suppression tactics, which we've talked about. They haven't focused on the provisions that allow Republicans to fix the outcomes. So- what I want to know is how do we shift the public attention to these election fixing provisions? What can listeners do? And you know what? Just I want to bookmark this because separately, I, I'm going to come back and do an episode about uh, about concrete things that you can do if you live in certain places to get involved and help uh, and help stop this. But for right now, for everybody, what can they do to shift public attention? To, to the election fixing provisions? How do we focus people in the right, in the right direction here? Lucy? I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. I think that it has to come from democratic infrastructure. I think that it has to come from the DNC. I think it need, needs to come from the committees. I think it needs to come from state parties. I think it needs to come from liberal commentators. I, I, unfortunately. Unfortunately, because no one else has been able to get penetration. And, and I mean, maybe it needs to come from, you know, activist groups on kind of issue affinity areas, but it's hard Why to say. You write into your favorite podcasts and, and, and TV hosts and shows that you listen to and maybe ask them to address this. Maybe that's one, that's one uh, thing that you can do right now. Okay. Molly, this is a mess, right? If these efforts succeed and the United States essentially, which it's not a foregone conclusion that they won't succeed. It's just like, it's it, the, the path is, you know, the path is clear. If they succeed in the United States essentially has fixed elections or, or they're able to be overturned and, and, you know, popular votes are overturned at the state level. Is there any hope for real democracy around the globe? And can you talk about how these types of election laws have shaped the, the rise of authoritarianism? globally? I think this uh, strategy mindset approach, you know, that the, the Bannonist conservatives have, have adopted, which is really understanding who cares about the votes. We don't need the votes. You know, we need to cheat and that's how we're going to win uh, is wholly authoritarian in its strategy and concept, right? And 
some versions of this, how do you cheat to make sort of elections sort of look like democracy to sort of endorse your sort of leader uh, in, in with different applications and different bits has been used in a lot of places that are democracies to ensure that their, uh, their current leaders stay the forever leader, right? And I think um, there's a lot of examples, like some of the stuff, I think the U.S. just doesn't have the language to talk about this a lot of the time. Because we don't live in a country where uh, we care what election observers are saying or, you know, we, we don't talk about the quality of the uh, administration of the elections afterward. Because up until five years ago, uh, with a minor blip in the Bush-Gore election, you know, it's just not something we thought about or took seriously. Um, because our elections were and remain essentially our elections infrastructure is entirely trust-based, right? Like if you're voting in DC, which most of us do, you know, maybe they'll ask you for an ID, but most of the time, if you go in and just say, I'm, you know, Molly McHugh, and this is my address, they're like, check, here's your ballot, you know? And, and we love that, right? We love that we're not actually worried about the administration of our elections because we are an actual country. Um, but we need to start caring about the administration of our elections and all the stuff that comes after, um, because we don't like the normal American doesn't understand what happens after the things go in the box, right? Like we're super happy to go and fill out the ballot and put it in the box and put on our, I voted sticker and walk home. But, um, everything that happens afterward is now extremely important and disruptors are focused on every one of those steps, you know, how ballots are collected, how digital and non-digital votes are tabulated, uh, who certifies those things, who oversees those things, uh, who can disrupt the count or create doubt in that process of the things, uh, who can then throw out what any of those votes actually mean and decide something else afterward. Um, in a way that I just think we are not prepared to talk about or to have actually happen, obviously. Um, and we view things like Arizona as a little bit quirky and like whatever's happening in Wisconsin, which has constantly been the test bed for crazy conservative stuff for years, um, you know, is like, well, it's Wisconsin, like whatever those weirdos are doing. Um, but we need to take this seriously because they've learned that it works. And I think this issue of perceptions, yes. right? In so many countries in the world, their elections sucked because the perception of them was that they sucked. We need to get this here, that if the perception is that our next series of elections are fraught with peril, fraught with fraud, you know, run by lunatics who are overturning the will of the people, we will not be a serious democracy anymore. And that is what these people are talking about doing. Your vote, you Americans, doesn't actually matter. What matters is what I think, because I know I'm right. And if, I, if you vote a different way, it's because, you know, lies, fraud, conspiracies, like anybody who votes for Democrats must actually be a pedophilia-oriented Antifa sympathizer. So I'm the only vote that matters because of the guns in the back of my truck or whatever they actually think in their heads. And we're just not taking this seriously that this is how these people think they're going to win is through fucking the process, not through getting votes, not through selling ideas, through selling rage and the screwing up of the process. And that works. And anybody who doesn't think that that's going to work really needs to look closer. Cause if the perception is that we suck, it's um, there's nothing else like the United States in the world yeah. And this is not, you know, American exceptionalism in the grossest sense, but there is nothing else like <laughs> us in history and how people look at us still and view us. They still want our endorsement. They still want our support. 
They still wait to see how America will lead on important issues like defending Ukraine or standing up to China or, you know, supporting democratic revolutions around the world. That is our job. That's the job we accepted as the first real democracy, right? And uh, we need to take that seriously because there is nothing else there if we decide to sit this one out. This is a point that Mike Madrid has made a couple of times before on on and off Mike, which is that the democracies around the globe need each other now more than ever before. And the United States needs other democracies around the globe to succeed. If we fail, they will fail, right? This, this fight is so much bigger than just here. Um, but I have two other thoughts uh, that came to mind before we close out this segment. One is that I sort of hear... Uh, David Becker, politicology guest and former prosecutor at the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division, whispering, whispering over my shoulder right now, yeah, but we have to be really clear that the elections processes in the United States are inc- incredibly secure. The, the, the election of 2020 was one of the most secure, the most secure in history. And when we talk about these things, we have to be very clear because the rhetoric can go off the rails very easily. The the votes were cast, they were counted, they were incredibly accurate, they were audited, and it was, it was again, the most secure election in history. What we're talking about right now is legal mechanisms that can be exploited to overturn the results of that very secure election. So I just want, I, I don't want to leave any room for ambiguity about this because because uh, I, the the worst thing to be to, to happen would be for both sides to start talking about you know voter fraud or or insecure elections or right the integrity of the outcome of a popular vote. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the, the 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 rails that already exist, that the powers that are already granted to state legislatures to to essentially overturn uh, legally the 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 popular vote in a state, send different electors to Congress, and basically how how that could happen. Um, those rails already exist. So I just want to be very clear about that. Well, for, for people who are, are, want proof that, they, that democracy really does depend on the, the ecosystem of democracies, when they're done reading that piece in The Atlantic, they can read another piece in The Atlantic about the, the kind of strengthening of the far right in France um, and, and then kind of weep into their coffee cups. But, yeah. but it's, it's really true to both of your points. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to overturn the Biden administration's proposed rule that large private employers must require workers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or be tested regularly. The vote was 52 to 48, with Senators Joe Manchin and John Tester joining all Republicans to overturn the regulation. This vote was largely symbolic because it's highly unlikely that Democratic leaders in the House will take up the measure, and the White House has said Biden would veto it if it reaches his desk. Republicans used a law called the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to overturn federal regulations by a simple majority vote in both the Senate and the House. But this is just the latest hit to the federal vaccine mandates. A federal judge issued a preliminary injunction to halt the national vaccine mandate for healthcare workers at the end of November. The U.S. District Court of the Southern District of Georgia halted the enforcement of the vaccine mandate for federal contractors nationwide. That court said Biden had likely exceeded his authority under the Procurement Act when he issued the mandate. And Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer reportedly told business owners that the vaccine mandate posed a problem for both business and her government. 
she noted that if the mandate goes into effect, Michigan will lose state employees. And all of this comes as New York City just announced a new vaccine mandate for all private sector employers who have employees working in a workspace with coworkers. Unlike the federal mandates, it does not give unvaccinated employees the option to get tested regularly. And this one really caught my eye, which is the reason that we're talking about all of this today. So uh, before we dig in, how are you both thinking about vaccine mandates and balancing bodily autonomy and the public health crisis that we're facing because of COVID? Molly? I mean, for me, it's impossible to discuss any anti-vaccine sentiment without just looking at the grotesque environment of disinformation in which most of it occurs and being really sad that it has become so deeply entrenched in just about every what we think of as developed nation that the anti-vaccine sentiment has become a basis of protest anti-establishment you know organizational thinking pretty much everywhere uh and it's really interesting to watch how those things, like it just, it's like one of those litmus tests you can now Google, like, is there an anti-mask, anti-vaccine protest happening in Poland? Okay, like, then it's everywhere. You know, it's just like, you can see it everywhere. So for me, it's really hard to take it seriously because I understand the environment in which so much of this is being passed around, which is just a hot pile of garbage, right? And it's like half a step removed from, you know, uh, George Soros wants Bill Gates to put a microchip in my head. Or he's already done I that. Just, <laughs> well, it's already done. Like we all have microchips in our heads already. Um, uh, which is why we're, I guess, voting Democrat or something. But like, it, I, it's really hard for me to pull these things apart and treat it in a more serious way. Where obviously I do think people should be able to make decisions. But, you know, I also have a background in public health. Like before I started doing this stuff, huh. I did half a degree, half a degree focused on epidemiology. <laughs> and um, so I have a really hard time with the cripplingly selfish man children that use their positions of leadership to argue that public health has absolutely no place in mm. what we are explaining to people right now. Like this is really basic. Like you in Oregon don't actually want children dying of measles in the 21st century. So fucking get your vaccines folks and stop pandering to these kooks who think vaccines are causing autism. And like, it's kind of the same with COVID. Like we need, we know we need this to make our economies function and to stay integrated with the world uh, and to have them take us seriously and allow Americans to travel there. So like, let's just figure out a way to do this. That doesn't have to become this battleground. Like we shouldn't need, all of these ridiculous mandates, which are clearly going to be overturned by courts because there's all sorts of legal issues and forcing anybody to do anything medical, right? Um, except apparently if it's a woman's body, then it's fine. You can tell them to do anything you want. But um, uh, I don't, I have such a hard time with this space because it is so inundated with toxic, coercive disinformation um, that I just, I can't take it. I, I have a really hard time taking people seriously who want to explain to me why they think no one should have to get vaccines when we should all just get vaccines. Yeah. Lucy, this is very clearly, I mean, this segment anyway, it really isn't about vaccines or vaccine efficacy. So let's set that aside. I think we're, we're all pretty much on the same page about that. Really what we're, we're talking. Bought in. Well, yeah, we're, we're bought <laughs> in. Yeah. <laughs> 
what we're talking about here is, you know, sort of fundamentally, what should the government be able to do? And at what level? Because we're talking about resistance points here at the federal level, in the case of the Biden administration's mandate, both in the Senate and at the in the, in the judicial branch. We're talking about state-level resistance in, in Michigan, in, in Governor Whitmer's case, and then we're talking about city level, right? Uh, so like, the question that we're wrestling with is, uh, and that the administration is now bumping up against, is what, how far can the federal government go? How far can governments go in in dictating public health, and especially when it comes to matters that are sort of inherently about bodily autonomy, right? And I think there are real legitimate questions here. It's unclear to me how we should be thinking about them, and I just I don't I don't know how you how you tease those apart, um, especially given you know that the, the same question is wrapped up in in the abortion debate, which is hot right now. So I don't know how how are you thinking about this. Without wading into the de- abortion debate at this moment, I don't, I don't find them to be so closely connected. Um, but I do, I do think that a thing that's interesting about the vaccine mandate question really comes down to a couple of things. I mean, it is so much more, I think, about the mechanics of government, and we'll see what the courts decide, than it is about right to autonomy and individual liberties, because really what's at issue centrally in these cases and the reason that the Biden administration is losing in court is that it's coming down to whether there's executive authority, whether or not you can use an agency like OSHA to um, force these mandates. And so it, it to me, it has not turned out to be a litigation, uh, a relitigation of say Jacobson, which was the uh, a piece of court precedent that that we've relied upon to to for a hundred years to say yes, vaccine um, vaccine mandates can be held legal, right? It, it, it is it is it's quite it's become quite a, a distinct animal. I, I would submit though that whether or not the Biden administration keeps losing in court, if <laughs> they could both lose in court and this could be struck down. And it could still have been a successful, <laughs> a successful initiative because what has happened is that he has actually, he, Joe Biden, Joe Biden's administration, the Biden administration has, what they've actually done is created cover for companies, large companies who want to have vaccinated employees and for good reason, because for instance, they pay for these employees to have health insurance. They pay, they can't work if they're sick whole lot of reasons that have nothing to do with being, you know, on the side of uh, truth or on the side of public health that are just practical, like don't want your employees having, you want to have a, a super spreader event on your factory floor or whatever. The Biden administration has created cover for these companies to mandate vaccines. And so there are some who've said, we're going to wait and see, but a whole bunch of them have just gone ahead and said, yeah, well, we're just trying to comply. We want to get ahead of it. And so I just think it's it's interesting to think about the political calculus and the way in which you know the Biden administration could even win even if they literally lose in court. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To what extent do you think that this debate that this fight over vaccines and vaccine mandates is really a proxy for something bigger? Much, definitely, definitely. And, and I've, I've been, well, this is no surprise. I do a lot of work around figuring out, tracking who are, say, Republicans who are likely state legislators who are likely to be 
on the good guy's side if we have another insurrection, if we have another coup attempt, if we have another attempt at decertifying the election, whatever. And there's a huge correlation between anti-vaccine sentiment and what these people are saying about the elections. This is not really about whether anyone's actually afraid to have mRNA pumped into their veins. This is just a this is just a, a cultural signal. And I think that one of the things that that actually, not to go back to that Atlantic piece, but one of the things that it really made clear, and, and actually another thing that happened this week is Dan Crenshaw, the congressman from, from Texas, gave a speech in which he told a crowd who was not thrilled to hear this, basically, that, that actually um, members of Congress like Adam Kinzinger vote with Trump, voted with Trump on policy much more than, say, you know, I'm Matt Gates, or I'm using him as an example, but some other, but, but all of these elements, like the Atlantic article points out the way in which people are more responsive to kind of like violent language and rage than less if they're Trump supporters. This is another one of those examples where it is the, the, the being an anti-vaxxer, these are not like hippies who don't want to put anything in their body, right? Mm -hmm. These are not like you know, there were some of those. Is, that is that that is that is part of the history are, of anti-vax. Yeah, of the MAGA crowd. I mean, that is, right, there may be crowd. overlap in the Venn diagram, but that is not the motivating yeah. motivating factor. There are certainly a whole lot of people living off the land who have personal reasons for wanting to not wanting to get the vaccine. But the being an anti-vaxxer is at this point is completely a proxy for other stuff, and it's so weird because Molly was talking about the disinformation piece. And, and I think I just like humor me and let me take 15 seconds to say this, that there's a really weird part of the disinformation is not even like just falsehoods being spread. It's also people accepting a frame that even as they say it makes no sense at all. So for instance, one of the most common lines you'll hear from Republicans, anti-vaxxers, that group is that uh, natural immunity, getting sick from COVID, provides more protection than having had the vaccine, which could be true. Prob- maybe it sounds, sounds totally plausible. I don't know. But protection against what? Getting COVID. Right. <laughs> getting COVID. And so they're accepting this frame where even what they're accepting, so that's like a weird tautological thing. Like, I want to get sick to have protection against getting sick. So I'm not going to get the vaccine to protect me against getting sick. So I'm going to get sick in order to not get sick. That doesn't, that just, that defies logic. It's not even like falsehoods, but it, it, it goes to the extent to which it, it, there's, there's no getting off any of these people yeah. off of this yeah. line of thinking. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Is there, should we be thinking uh, about vaccine or test mandates differently than just a, a, a straight up vaccine mandate, you think? Well, in New York, where uh, de Blasio um, announced this week that New, York, New York's private sector employees will be subject to a vaccine mandate, and, and there are a whole lot of political calculuses that are, that are interesting about it, he has removed testing as an option. In Biden's mandates, the language is something like, you must get vaccinated or, or submit testing. to right. negative testing every week. And de Blasio has said, like, that's off the table. Um, and so at some point, it seems like there's really no downside in, in playing hardball with these people. And what we've seen actually over and over, contrary to what Gretchen Whitmer 
is suggesting to her audience is that most people, once there's a vaccine mandate, if they really feel subject to it, they don't all leave the workforce. They don't all quit their jobs. They quietly get vaccinated and they honestly probably feel relieved at not having to carry around the burden of, of, you know, that particular aspect of the culture wars. Yeah. And I think a good example of that was when the military finally pulled the plug and was like, yeah, yes. no, you're getting this vaccine. Like yeah. we've injected you with every other experimental vaccine in the world. You're getting this one too. Uh, and there was this like, on the on the crazy right wing overse media, it was like, oh, they're all there's going to be a mass you know exit of people from the military, which did not happen. Like everybody got their shots. I think there's been like one like less than one percent of people have tried to get some waiver, you know, to like not. But it's like none of them have been granted. Nobody's quit. Nobody's left because they didn't want to get their COVID vaccine. I mean, this is just. I think Lucy has it exactly right, which is I think a lot of people are just sort of glad to put down this bit of the stupid culture war and get on with their job and their acquisition of a pension that most people don't have and like just get on with it. And it's it's really it's really silly, this whole I, I don't it, it makes me sad to see people like Whitmer, who obviously are are good governors uh, engaging in this idea that there's going to be like mass public uh, uh, you know, resignations um, if they put in mandates, because I just, I mean, there, that doesn't play out in reality. I think the way Lucy structured what she was saying in terms of the Biden administration is trying to give everybody cover for doing this themselves, I think is exactly right, right? This is who cares if the law stands or not. It's like for now, it creates, it's the same thing as with the, the light. Remember when there was the thing where it was like, get rid of the old light bulbs. Now everything has to be these terrible you know, energy saver bulbs that we all still loathe and hate secretly. Um, yeah, and then do. the Republicans, I mean, we all hate them. <laughs> and then the Republicans, I still have a whole box of 60 watt bulbs upstairs just oh, in case. Like Molly's really showing herself here. <laughs> <laughs> I hate energy saver bulbs. The light is terrible. That's, I would I rather have I'm, I'm totally with you on this. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather have I candlelight, honestly. Like, I know. I too want to save the environment, right. but I would rather have a fire in my Same. room than those stupid light bulbs. But yep. anyway, when they changed over the light, the point being, when they changed over the rules and said everybody had to, you know, make these no more incandescent bulbs, all energy saver bulbs, um, everybody switched over because, you know what, they actually cost a lot more for consumers. So fine, we'll just make those really expensive light bulbs, no big deal. Uh, and then when the Republicans sort of overturned that and were like, no, no, go ahead, make incandescent bulbs again, they were like, yeah, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> We're making these really <laughs> expensive light bulbs instead and we've changed our factories, right? And I feel like this is kind of part of it, is if you can create the momentum right now to encourage as many of the remaining abstainers, which is not as many as, as the anti-vax people would like you to believe, to just go and get the stupid vaccine and move on, then we as a population will be more protected and able to get through these next couple of years where it's still going to be pretty fraught, I think. And um, so I think that's really important. I mean, so I think as as much momentum toward getting the holdouts as possible is important. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching under the radar. Molly, what do you have for us? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so in my perpetual... I look at the things that I know, right? I just got back from Idaho where I spent Thanksgiving with my father 
Um, and, uh, you know, on the way there, you have to fly over a lot of the mountain West, which let me tell you is brown and dry and deep in drought. And I know I've raised this before on this show, but I think the, uh, climate situation of the American West and particularly the mountain West, um, which is becoming more severe and more prone to, you know, fire, drought, extreme weather events, uh, I think is a really good indicator of what could happen everywhere else. And I still think Washington does not pay enough attention to uh, things far from Washington mm-hmm. <laughs> in the United States, but in particular, the, uh, the mountain West, which only has 11%. I mean, the, what the, the mountain time zone has 11% of the U S population. So it's, it's a very underrepresented uh, part of the country, but there's a lot happening there that I think should be in terms of, of, water politics, who has access to rivers, who has access to grazing, who has access to public lands, uh, how the changing climate is uh, impacting all of these different public policies, social pressures, particularly for ranchers, farmers, uh, all the new people who have moved in from rich coastal places during COVID. Um, there's a lot happening there that I think is really kind of the tip of an iceberg for some of the coming debates in the country that I think we should pay more attention to. Lucy, what are you watching? Well, actually, Molly will probably like this story because I have been paying attention to some coverage, including a, a piece that came out in Venture Beat this week about companies, tech companies' approaches to uh, content moderation, which is obviously a massive challenge in the disinformation era. And VentureBeat did a kind of roundup of, of how things are going at various companies and, and sort of re-upped some things that have happened in the past. But for, for instance, you know, you may remember that in 2019, it was basically all these companies are used, trying to use artificial intelligence, you know, bots, whatever, to be able to go, it's it's such a huge scale. You can't moderate that with the customer success people, but to be able to go at scale, clean up stuff that's falsehood or abusive language or whatever. And you may remember, for instance, that in 2019, Instagram, basically, they realized that their content moderation that was automated was doing things like it was like 50% more likely to ban black users, right? So these content moderation tools often go really awry. Um, but a team at Penn State has been conducting a big, a big study on, on some of this stuff. And, and they found recently that um, a lot of these models, for instance, like Jigsaw, which is Google's counter abuse piece of, of technology, is associating negative sentiment, sentiment words with things like drugs, homelessness, addiction, and gun violence, things like anything around disability, like blind, autistic, deaf, mentally handicapped, all things that we could imagine might be in the context of, say, content or conversations that are totally positive, right? It could be like, you know, NAMI or, you know, a mental health uh, group are having all their content flagged and pushed down. And and that's one example. But I think it's interesting to think about because I think that we all engage in these platforms all the time. We're using social media all the time. And it's not even just social media. It's also comments. It's also search engine terms. You know, how does content rise or fall? What gets privileged? And that example is an example where stuff that we probably do want to 
have up higher if it's, say, resources for people with a loved one struggling with a challenge, trying to get help. We want them to be able to get to the content and see it. But you can also think about all the other things that could be happening. If, If we're relying on artificial intelligence to learn from humans how to moderate the content and how to how to flag what's good and what's bad if it turns out the humans themselves are not not so great then the the ai that we're we're depending on is also going to perpetuate our human error and and the worst of us and so i just think that these are kind of um, you know under the hood of the car elements but they have a huge impact that we don't see on the content that we're interacting with every day, who's getting a voice in our discourse and, and how our views about the world and everything going around us are, you know, a lot around us are, are shaped in in our lives. I think everything Lucy just said, then remember those exact same badly trained and not just the training, but, but badly structured and written uh, machine learning tools and AI applications are being used to decide, you know, who gets better healthcare than other people, who gets loans and who doesn't, who gets access to colleges and who doesn't. And, uh, you know, who's, who, who ends up in the predictive policing yes. algorithms right. versus who does yes. not, right? And that bullshit is happening everywhere. And if you don't think that bullshit is happening and every single bullshit engineer that's building these bullshit things is walking around trying to sell their amazing AI solution to whatever data problem everybody has, uh, and it's not fucking over a lot of people and fundamentally anti-democratic. Like, you just need to pay attention to that because it's screwing you over in some way you don't understand right now, right? And like, I think for all of us who are above a certain age and in a profession and, and you know, we'll, we'll figure it out or not, like, it's less of a threat. But I think everybody younger who will have their access to opportunity defined by computer tools uh, should be extremely concerned about all the ways that AI is being applied um, that are totally unregulated and and non-transparent. I had a fascinating conversation about exactly this topic with two Stanford professors, Jeremy Weinstein and Miran Sahami, who, who just wrote a book called System Error, How Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Fix It. I visited them at Stanford and that two-part episode two part series is is up on the politicology feed but they were essentially the book the warning is about the 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 ethical decisions that engineers are making as they're building the tech that we live our lives by and how unequipped they are to be making those decisions um, as they as they are not just choosing which problems to solve but then deciding how they solve them um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion, um, about things that are, as you both mentioned, completely concealed to us as, as end users, but which shape very materially, uh, the, uh, not just the information we consume, but, but our, our analog behavior. So good chatter, Lucy, really good. I, <laughs> I, um, yesterday, uh, well, let's see. You'll hear this on Friday. So Wednesday, I sat through most of the, I don't know, four or five hour uh, hearing of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, which was a non-legislative hearing, which means they weren't 
um, they weren't sort of talking about potential legislation that's about to be introduced. It's more of the the final hearing and a fact finding mission uh, to listen to the crypto community. This hearing uh, was really interesting, um, and the thing that the thing that stuck out to me about it was this one moment where. And I'm mentioning this because the flashback to last week or the week before when I mentioned uh, Twitter and Jack Dorsey and Square and Spiral uh, and, a, and a little project called TBDEX, um, this, there was this one exchange uh, where the, the topic was around uh, the need for some portable way to prove a, a, that you had been KYC essentially that you that the know your customer regulations have been applied to you as as a person who's exchanging value uh, and interacting with the, with fiat currencies um, or stable coins right which are representations of a dollar but in cryptocurrency form essentially everybody agreed that they need something like that um, in order to comply with existing regulations and that that would be a, essentially a healthy thing for the industry uh, and. And I and I, I just mentioned that because a couple of weeks ago, that is at the core of what uh, Square is trying to do, or or Block as it's now called, is trying to do with this project called TBDEX, which is essentially to build a protocol upon which you could you could build a decentralized mechanism for uh, for identifying people uh, in in a in a trustless way without having to go through a single institution. So I just. It's a lot more crypto wonkiness, but um, uh, I just wanted to plant another flag there. I think that is uh, very interesting, and it's going to be necessary if uh, if this if this industry is to grow up and um, and become mainstream. Lucy, Molly, before we go to the after party, aka Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you on the internet? Lucy, I'm on Twitter at Lucy M Caldwell. Molly. On Twitter at Molly McHugh, M-C-K-E-W, or at greatpower.us. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.